Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Donald Trump's presidency has been a mix of establishment and populist politics. In terms of policy, the president has combined standard Republican tax cuts and deregulation with more restrictionist policies on trade and immigration. And while the president's rhetoric has often been anti-elite, norm-violating, and sometimes inflammatory, he's also won the support of the mainstream Republican Party lawmakers and voters alike. So what are we to make of his presidency? Have President Trump's economic policies been successful? If so, to what degree does populism deserve the credit? Today, I'll be discussing these issues with two great guests. First, Casey Mulligan is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he served as chief economist for the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration from September 2018 to August 2019. His most recent book, released just last month, is You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. And Michael Strain is the John G. Searle Scholar and Director of Economic Policy Studies here at AEI. He is the author of The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It, released in February of this year. So here's how the event's going to go. Uh, to start out, Casey will speak for about 10 minutes, and then Mike will offer a 10-minute response. And after that, we'll, we'll, we'll have a, a panel discussion for a while. And toward the end of the discussion, about 10.45, we're going to do a Q&A. Uh, with that, uh, Professor Mulligan. Good morning. I really appreciate AEI organizing this. Um, I'm going to economize on your time today, but you can find a lot more in my new book. And readers have been having fun, but also coming away agreeing at least somewhat that populism has some real substance. So let's start with a definition of populism. And in, in his book, Michael refers to pitting the people against the elites. And the people in the elites are in scare quotes. So I take that to mean that he and others are, might be skeptical whether these groups actually exist. And as I explain in my book, the elites really do exist as a group and prove that it's only a slight exaggeration to say that we all know each other. As one piece of data, even in the Trump White House, the incidence of Harvard graduates is 100 times what it is in the general population. Second, the pitting word, I think, suggests that the conflict is imagined or only manufactured by politicians. To the contrary, this, this is a real conflict. People have been suffering from significant policy mistakes, which the elites do not acknowledge, let alone fix. In the short time today, I'll give you a couple examples. Drug overdoses tripled over about 10 years, but as various metrics in my book show, Washington remained as oblivious as ever. Federal policy was unwittingly fueling this epidemic with, for example, subsidies up and down the prescription drug supply chain. But at least in the years I showed you, illegal fentanyl did not loom large. During these years and decades before, fentanyl would momentarily come into the US market. And at the time, people would say our drug supply was getting poisoned, but the Department of Justice every time would beat it back. Then in 2013, without any acknowledgement as to what was going on with opioids, the attorney general did this. 
most intense, where I had these mandatory minimum sentences that I had to impose on people who had drug problems and who were selling, you know, relatively small amount of drugs in a nonviolent way to support a drug habit that they had, uh, and who had to go to jail for a five-year mandatory minimum or a 10-year mandatory minimum. And I didn't feel comfortable doing that. As Attorney General, Holder announced that he would no longer support mandatory minimums for low-level drug crime. Immediately, here comes the fentanyl. Immediately, surveys showed record increases in the number of people using illicitly manufactured opioids. The Trump campaign called out the opioid epidemic. This was a major part of the American carnage that Trump cited in his inaugural address which of course deeply offended the elites. I'll go easy on Michael on this point. So let's instead take Susan Rice's new book, which begins the very beginning of the book, the opening of the book she talks about, she heard Trump say American carnage in his address. And that was evidence she says of his unthinkable cynicism and ugliness and how our president was saying farewell to the moral universe, I quote her. She has 534 pages in that book, but not one of them has room to mention the opioid epidemic, drug overdoses, or any real substance behind populism. So let's look closer at the address and at the monthly data. What did the president say in his inaugural address? The crime and the gangs and drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much potential. This American carnage stops right here and right now. Very clearly, once we go back and look what he actually said, he's referring to uh, the drugs and the crime that have stolen too many lives early before the natural death. Now, I admit that the data, the monthly data are noisy, but it sure looks like the carnage did stop exactly when our president said it would. Now, the, the deaths did not go down to zero, and I'll have more to say about that. Um, but part of what happened in January 2017 is the new attorney general that the president put in uh, rescinded the Holder memo. Although I am concerned that some US attorneys out there are still following the Holder approach. Trump campaigned loudly also against Obamacare's individual mandate, specifically an excessive regulation generally. The individual mandate is a classic case where regular people had to suffer under a flaw, fundamentally flawed theory from the so-called experts. Another thing they try to do is to force people with beer budgets to have wine tastes. I give many examples in the book, but let's take small dollar loans. As J.D. Vance explains in his best-selling book about flyover country, small dollar loans can be a convenient and valuable product for poor people. They can pay 40 or $50 to get a small short-term loan that allows them to avoid hundreds of dollars in late fees and penalties from banks, landlords, collectors, et cetera. But the so-called Consumer Finance Protection Bureau puts that $40 in their annual percentage rate formula and concludes that nobody should be allowed to purchase such a service. Never mind the 600,000 consumers who wrote CFPB begging to keep the loans that help them pay, I quote, for rent, childcare, food, vacation, school supplies, car payments, power, utility bills, cell phone bills, credit card bills, groceries, medical bills, insurance premiums, and student educational costs. The last one that I want to show you with the little time that I have is how FDA regulations protect, 
protected generic drug manufacturers from competition. This is not a question of safety and efficacy because the formula in any generic drug has been in use for many years. The companies rigged the system so that they could charge brand name prices for generic products. President Trump ended that beginning in 2017. This really hurt Chinese and other foreign companies who had previously secured themselves special favors. And Israeli manufacturers stock crashed and the analysts readily acknowledged that what was going on was there was more competition in the market for generic drugs stemming from what FDA began doing in 2017. Most important, consumers saw it too. I show here the consumer price index for prescription drugs, and we see that it became negative for the first time in 46 years. Now, I understand that deregulation is a dirty word in certain circles that call themselves populists. Jim called deregulation the standard uh, Republican fare. Well, Trump's FDA deregulation by itself translates into ongoing savings of about 11% on prescription drugs generally, which is a big deal, especially for low-income families. I don't understand why any populist would want to reverse these savings and return to the companies the pri privileges that excessive regulation created for them. Trump's many regulatory changes add up to real savings. These are my estimates of what it would cost to go back to running the regulatory state the way President Bush and Obama were. I have broken consumers down into five income groups. That's each of the bars here. And you can see that the lowest income group would face lower wages and higher expenses, such as the prescription drugs I showed you, that total 15% of their income. That would be like doubling their uh, taxes that they pay. The way I see it, Trump has been a political entrepreneur who figured out how to ride populism into winning the biggest elected position in the world, and then achieving historic policy successes pursuant to some, at least, of his campaign promises. There are failures too. Uh, the subtitle of my book is Successes and Failures. So maybe Trump is, is the political sphere's version of the Blackberry, historical progress, but ultimately to be supplanted by something even better. What I can assure you is that the people continue to suffer from significant policy mistakes and they know it. Even while the elites continue to fail to acknowledge and even hiding, as I explained in my book, hiding evidence about their failures. Resting on real fundamentals, populism is not going away even when Trump does. Thank you. All right, great. Uh, uh, now we have uh, 10 minutes or so from uh, Dr. Strain. Uh, so uh, uh, thank you again, Dr. Mulligan, for that, that thoughtful presentation. And, and there's, there's a lot in there uh, for sure. And I would encourage everybody to buy Casey's book. Um, it, you can find it on Amazon uh, and uh, other places as well. It's uh, very thoughtful and, and, and certainly worth your time. And, and uh, uh, regardless of what happens uh, next month, I think, I think Casey's point that populism uh, may be here to stay and that and that, uh, uh, and that, and that, and that, and that maybe other other iterations of populism following President Trump is certainly a, a thoughtful thesis and, and and one that that all interested uh, all people interested in politics and economics and public policy should read. So I would strongly encourage you to buy Casey's book. Um, my book, The American Dream is Not Dead, but Populism Could Kill It. Uh, I think you can tell by the subtitle. Casey and I uh, have different views on this question. Um, let me just dive in here. What is populism? Uh, Casey touched on this and 
and quoted me, uh, and um, uh, uh, I didn't uh, hear Casey's presentation before he gave it. I heard it for the first time with with the audience. So you'll see the scare quotes in here around the people and the elites. I, if I if I had heard Casey's presentation, I might have taken those out. Um, but uh, you know, let me let me give a, a, a three part definition: a, a political stance aggressively pitting the people against the elites. Um, uh, I think is 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 a key part of any definition of populism. Um, now, this does not mean that the elites don't exist and the people don't exist, um, uh, but uh, it does mean that that I think that this this uh, uh, dichotomy is is overdone by by populists and by populism. Um, the the dichotomy is less strong than I think populists would have you believe. Uh, an emphasis on the decency of the people and the corruption of the elites. I think that's an important part of. Of populism, that 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 the elites are rigging the system against the people. That's a common phrase you hear uh, Elizabeth Warren or Senator Sanders use, for example, uh, as well as the president. Um, and, and then finally, an embrace of pessimism. Things are terrible. Uh, you know, the trajectory is, is is bad for the nation and for individuals, and an effort to close the country and to turn inward. Uh, immigrants are the problem. Uh, globalists are the problem. Globalization is the problem. We're losing uh, abroad. There's a zero sum mentality. We need to turn and we're focused on ourselves. Um, and, uh, and, and we need to do that because things are really terrible. So uh, uh, that I think is, is the way that I think about populism. So let's talk about Trumpian populism. I think it's important to identify which of the president's initiatives are populist and why. Uh, 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 you know, when the president uh, orders scrambled eggs for breakfast, that's not a populist act. Lots of lots of people have scrambled eggs for for breakfast, um, and certainly not everything the president has done uh, is uh, is populist. But 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 there are you know quite a, quite a few things that that are um, uh, the best parts of the president's agenda. Casey talked a lot about one in his presentation, which is deregulation. I think that's been uh, successful. Um, and the 2017 tax law, uh, you know, particularly the corporate uh, tax provisions in that law, I think are I think are very successful, um, and uh, and are the best parts of the president's overall economic policy agenda. I wouldn't I wouldn't include those as populist. I think that uh, you know reducing the corporate income tax rate is something that that Mitt Romney would have done if he were elected. There would have been a lot of pressure on John McCain to do that if he were elected, um, and that's been a standard goal of of, of Republican conservative economic policy for for quite some time. Um, deregulation, same thing. Uh, uh, find me a Republican who who doesn't think that the um, that the U.S. economy is too heavily regulated. So those are certainly parts of the president's policy agenda. They are successful uh, parts of the president's policy agenda, but I wouldn't I wouldn't call them populist. Uh, instead, uh, trade wars, attacks on domestic institutions, attacks on international institutions, uh, attacks on uh, basic norms, hostility toward immigrants, hostility toward immigration. You know, there, I think, those components of the president's agenda uh, are, are populist uh, and, and meet the definition of populism that I, that I put out at the beginning. Uh, in addition, I would, I would argue that the president typically enters the public debate and the discourse as a populist um, as well. And that's a, that's a big part of, of, of his presidency. So 
maybe the the uh, the the component of the president's populist agenda that he's made the most progress on, I think, is the trade war. Um, and so let's just take a take a look at at, at that in a little a, a little more detail. I would argue that the trade war didn't work even on its own terms. Uh, you know, the 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 terms of 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 the trade war are the standard terms that 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 are used uh, by uh, Democrats and Republicans who support protectionism, which is that uh, there's this group of, of workers, these parts of the country that have been neglected by the elites and the elites are uh, more interested in globalism and more interested in, in, in uh, overall economic performance, which presumably will help them uh, than they are in manufacturing workers in manufacturing towns. Uh, and so, uh, so we need uh, some protectionist policies in order to uh, correct that imbalance. And even if those policies increase consumer prices, slow investment spending, slow overall economic growth, they're worth it because they afford special benefit to this group of neglected workers, in this case, manufacturing workers or, or certain neglected regions of the country. Um, uh, you know, Casey mentioned the president's inaugural address, American Carnage. The president spoke about hollowed out factory towns. I think the phrase was scattered like tombstones across, across the nation. This is, this is uh, what, we're, what we're talking about. Uh, you'll recall when the trade war began, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross going on television, holding up a can of Campbell's soup and saying, you know, this, this can will cost you 1.5 cents or two cents more than, than it otherwise would. You know, the idea is that we can, we can spread the pain of the trade war uh, over, over the entire nation. And it's really not gonna be that, that bad. It's gonna cost you an extra penny to buy your can of soup, uh, but that's gonna allow significant benefits to flow to to, uh, to manufacturing workers uh, who, again, deserve special, special attention. Um, the best piece of evidence I'm aware of that looks at this hypothesis uh, is a 2019 paper by Federal Reserve economists Flynn and Pierce. And they do uh, what seems to me to be a pretty careful job trying to identify what the effect of the trade war was on manufacturing. Uh, and they find that protection from import competition provided by the tariffs does in isolation, increase manufacturing employment. So uh, looking at that one component, protection from, from, from import competition, actually does increase employment by about 0.3% uh, under the measure that they use. Um, but that, of course, is not all that trade wars do. Trade wars also increase the costs businesses face to purchase the goods they need for production, to purchase intermediate goods uh, in the production process. And Flynn and Pierce estimate that that uh, effect reduces employment by 1.1%. So even there, the, uh, uh, the, the, the effect of the trade war on employment uh, from increasing the cost of intermediate goods uh, uh, is significantly larger than the positive effect from uh, protection from imports. And of course, trade wars don't just don't just happen. There are wars. There's there's a tit for tat. Uh, you know, the president doesn't just impose tariffs and then that's the end of the story. Nations retaliate, and they also took it, that into account. Um, so they took into account three factors: protection from imports, increases in the cost of intermediate goods to production, and and tit for tat. And they find that overall, manufacturing employment actually was reduced by, 
by 1.4%, again, under their measure, as a consequence of the, of the trade war. Uh, so here again, the trade, war, the trade war didn't work even on the populist terms. The question, has Trumpian populism succeeded? For the trade war, the answer has to be no, uh, because the trade war hurt manufacturing workers, which are the group that, that the president argued needed special attention. Um, and of course, the trade war had other effects as well, a reduction in the varieties of imported goods uh, that US consumers can enjoy, higher prices that consumers face at the cash register, fewer exports, which hurt export intensive firms, uh, particularly farms, uh, uh, lower stock returns and higher default risk, um, uh, which again must be a consequence of, of the tip for that. Most of these are, are pretty well established. Most of the items on this list are pretty well established by existing economics research. Um, policy uncertainty from the trade war slowed business investment, which worked against the president's signature legislative accomplishment, which was the corporate tax reduction. The president encouraged investment with his right hand by reducing uh, corporate tax rates, and then he discouraged investment with his left hand uh, uh, by uh, starting uh, trade wars. Um, so the spillover effects, not only did Trumpian populism not work for the populist objectives, it also uh, reduced the effectiveness of the president's other objectives. Um, a little example of this, of this uncertainty. So let's go back to the summer of 2019, which seems like it was two or 300 years ago, based on, based on all that's happened in, in, in the past few months. Uh, in June, the US had been imposing a 25% tariff on $250 billion in Chinese imports, roughly half. Uh, uh, later in the month of June, the president agreed not to impose additional tariffs and to restart trade negotiations with China. Then about five weeks later, the president abruptly changed his mind uh, and imposed a 10% tariff on the remaining 300 billion of imports, effective September 1st. Then a few weeks after that, the president said, oh, we're not gonna do that until December. When asked why, the president said, we're doing this for the Christmas season. That's kind of a remarkable statement from the president, given that he had spent years telling the American people and telling businesses that the trade war would not have any adverse effect on them. Uh, uh, this is an example of the kind of climate that is created um, uh, when you enter into a trade war. How are businesses supposed to make investment decisions when uh, there's so much uncertainty about what the trade policy regime would be? This, I think, undermined uh, the success of the of the 2017 tax law, at least at least for now. Uh, uh, but 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 in addition, it undermined the argument that conservative uh, analysts and that economists put forward, which is that uh, that businesses will respond to these incentives. And if we have a President Biden and he raises the corporate tax rate. And uh, people uh, on the right and economists who are uh, uh, more in favor of free markets want to reduce the corporate tax rate again, they're going to have a much harder time doing that because of uh, 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 the president's trade war. Let me just say a, a word about the populist threat over the long term. Uh, I, think, I think a key part of the president's populism has been to stoke racial, ethnic, and religious animosity. Uh, this must have some effect on uh, consumer spending, um, uh, on business formation, uh, you know, particularly if it's sustained uh, over, over the longer term. The president uh, has supported protectionism and attacked the post-World War II liberal international order. That's a direct threat to prosperity. 
those institutions in that regime have been the bedrock of prosperity uh, on both sides of the, the Atlantic for seven decades. And by attacking it and by and by and by weakening it, uh, the president risks uh, threatening uh, the foundation of that prosperity or a foundation of that prosperity. By weakening the rule of law and the cultures and norms reinforcing it, the president has eroded the foundations of a strong economy uh, by attacking institutions, by labeling the Federal Reserve chairman as an enemy. The president has weakened public confidence in them. The president's hostility toward immigrants threatens the United States' place as the global destination for many of the world's best, brightest, and most ambitious people. That, of course, uh, has a significant longer run uh, economic effect. Uh, the extent to which um, this damage occurred over the last four years, I think, is is surprising and considerable. The uh, extent to which it will it will be lasting, I think, is uh, more of an open question. Um, but all of this, I think, is problematic from an economic perspective, and all of it, I think, flows from the president's populism. These are all. Uh, 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 manifestations of the populist impulse, um, and I think that they contribute to my verdict, which is that, which is that, um, the Trumpian populism has not succeeded. Uh, the uh, foundation of the president's message, uh, Casey referred to um, the president's inaugural address, American carnage. People, people have been doing terribly. Uh, uh, the country is 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 is, uh, or many parts of the country are are, are wasteland. Uh, I think it's just not in line with the economic record of the past three decades, which is something I spend a lot of time on in, in my book. Uh, America is upwardly mobile. Wages and incomes aren't stagnant. Workers do enjoy the fruits of their labor. The game is not rigged. Capitalism is not broken. The president has argued uh, on each of these points that I am wrong. And I believe the evidence suggests that the president is wrong and that populists are wrong. You hear exactly the same charges from populists on the political left as well, from Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. By the book, you'll see. Um, uh, I believe we can be confident. Populism is pessimistic. Populism is, is inward focused. And I think we should be optimistic. And I think we should be outward focused. Um, and uh, we are not in a zero sum conflict with each other. Uh, and and we can be open to the world and we can be confident in the future. And those aren't just sentiments. We can, we can be confident, we should be open, and we are not in a zero-sum conflict because that is what the economic record shows. Um, so uh, thank you for tuning in, and, and I look forward to the discussion. Great, thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll let Casey sort of respond, but I just wanna frame it for a second. Um, I believe what Mike uh, was saying, that the parts of Trumpian populism, which seem to have worked and were good ideas, are really sort of traditional republicanism, corporate tax cuts and deregulation. And the parts of Trumpian populism, which in Mike's view have been failures, uh, the trade war and immigration, uh, those are, that's populism that much of it sort of reflects the kind of things you also hear on the left a lot about uh, with you know, hostility to trade and, and sometimes immigration. So, so Casey, is Mike right? Is the parts that you really love of Trumpian populism, isn't that just republicanism and conservative economics, tax cuts and deregulation? Nope. <laughs> That's right. a short answer. Now you, um, I think if you look, and someone should do a word analysis of Trump's speeches, he's given a lot of speeches. I think you'll find the individual mandate 
and prescription drugs coming in there way more than trade. Um, if you take all four years together, yeah, there have been periods of time where he was more emphasizing on trade, but every other day he is bragging about getting rid of the individual mandate. Now you want to say that's a Republican thing? Okay, I think it came from heritage, but whatever, <laughs> whatever the people, and I explained in the book, the way Trump learned that the individual mandate was terrible and he should get rid of it as a leader of the, the people and not the elites was to ignore what the experts were saying about how it's needed for adverse selection and all this really terrible analysis. And it was hearing, he was hearing it from the people, um, not from Washington. Um, and I explained that in the book, same with the prescription, prescription drugs it, you hear about that in Washington, but again, they're hearing that from, from the people. Um, you know, those prescription drug regulations were in there in, in the Bush administration. He was a Republican last I checked. He had a brother that tried to run, run for this spot that, that Trump beat pretty handily. Um, the opioid epidemic, in fact, I explained in the book, that's a bipartisan failures there. Those subsidies up and down the supply chain, a lot of them came in under Republicans. In fact, some of the people who work for Bush on those issues are still in the Trump administration and burying the evidence about this. Um, so these are major things that, that the president has been doing. And if the Republicans want to, at the end, take credit, fine. But at least the people got um, what they wanted. Now, the tariffs, um, I think, first of all, Michael's way disproportionate on the tariffs. If you look at the amount of revenue involved, with the tariffs, it's like one of these deregulations. Uh, it, it, it's fairly small. Um, now, do you remember the Reagan trade war? I don't either. <laughs> if, if you heard Reagan talk about free trade, it's so beautiful. It brings, literally brings tears to my eyes to hear Reagan talk about trade. But I explain in the book that once I wipe the tears away and actually look at what Reagan did, Reagan was every bit as protectionist as Trump, okay? So does that mean that protectionism is populist or a Republican? I don't know. Reagan is like the iconic Republican. He was so protectionist. What he did different, and the reason there weren't Reagan trade wars is he did quotas. He protected the industries with quotas rather than tariffs, which means that the revenue, the extra money consumers pay goes to the foreign companies rather than to our treasury. That's the big difference. Reagan had a very similar, you know, in, that, in those days it was Japan and today it's China. But otherwise, it was the same thing. Intellectual property problems in, in, in Japan and other places in East Asia, that Reagan was threatening tariffs, threatening protectionism, and delivered this number of quotas to try to deal with that. And in his second term, Reagan got the Japanese and some other East Asian countries to agree to uh, some intellectual property protections, copyrights, and, and so on. Same thing going on with Trump. In fact, Trump has a lot of the Reagan people, Lighthizer, is the tr lead trade guy now. He was the number two trade guy in Reagan. You have Kudlow there from Reagan. You have the, uh, the, the speechwriter who worked on Bring Down That Wall. He was there. So there's a lot of the same people. Um, protectionism, I think, is a bipartisan affair that has been around long before populism. Michael, I should recommend, look at the tariff list. Look to, download Lighthizer's tariff list and just take a look at what's there, okay? what's the stuff you're talking about is tiny, even on relative to that list. We have a number of really outright import prohibitions that have been around my entire lifetime where there's been no populist president. You know, you can't make uh, 
pickup trucks in a foreign country because there's a massive tariff on it that's been there forever. And Obama and Bush never once dreamed about eliminating it. In fact, they promised another prohibition. We have import prohibitions, the Jones Act. Um, Bush, Obama, Reagan, they all promised the special interests that, that we're going to keep that prohibition on importing coastal shipping services. Um, Trump is the first one who has not promised to that lobby that he will keep it. In fact, as I explained in the book, he had tries and so far has failed to get rid of it, but he is not telling the special interest that they can keep that. Um, so I think to settle this debate, I think we need to be grounded in what's actually said and what's actually, uh, what the actual policies are. And these are busy people. They have lots of things they say and lots of things they do. But I think as quantitative social scientists, we have ways to bring that together. And, and I think you'll see a different picture. Mike, do you agree with Casey that the trade war, you know, maybe it was good, maybe it's bad, just is not, just really maybe it's not nearly as important as what you make it out to be, uh, particularly versus some of what Casey views as successes? Uh, no, I, I don't. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, but let me, let me offer an area of agreement. I mean, I agree with Casey on the, on the historical record that, that Republican presidents have imposed trade protections. Uh, there's no question about that. President Bush did, President, President Reagan did. Uh, as well, uh, but the the general direction of U.S. trade policy under both Republicans and Democrats uh, for de decades and decades has been toward um, a greater openness and 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 greater globalization uh, and fewer barriers to trade. That's not that doesn't mean that there weren't ever. Uh, protectionist policies put in place. That doesn't mean that, that we had a tariff-free world under President Bush and President Reagan, and then, and, then, uh, uh, and, then, and, then, and then all of a sudden all the tariffs popped up under Democrats. Um, but it does mean that the uh, kind of protectionist global trade system that was in place decades and decades ago uh, has dismantling that system has been a bipartisan project. Um, now, I think that uh, successive presidents, starting with President Bush, President Obama, were more aggressive toward China and toward their trade practices. That was wholly justified. Um, and I believe that if uh, Mrs. Clinton had won in 2016, she would have been more aggressive toward China than President Obama was, and that um, and that she should have been. And if Mitt Romney were president in 2016, he would have been more aggressive toward China than uh, than that President Obama was. Uh, what makes the president uh, stand out is his hostility toward that entire regime, um, uh, his hostility toward free trade in general, um, and instead of rallying an international coalition of our trading partners to isolate China and to crack down on China's genuine and legitimate trade abuses. The president uh, imposed tariffs on our European allies, imposed tariffs on our Canadian allies, you know, talked about pulling out of NATO and, 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 and all these things. And so the president was left without allies, uh, which has made his policies toward China uh, much, much less effective than they could have been uh, or than they should have been. The president's basic illiteracy about trade, uh, not understanding uh, what trade deficits are and what they are not, 
uh, not you know his adherence toward a mercantilist uh, view of of trade that's rejected by all economists or, or nearly all economists uh, has I think been uh, been unique and these are distinctly populist elements of the president's approach to uh, to trade policy uh, that 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 I don't think can be accurately characterized as being in keeping with the direction of trade policy under presidents of both parties. Uh, and that I think do represent an aberration uh, from from what we've seen what we've seen previously. You have a response to that, Casey? I, I think we look at the numbers. I don't think you're going to see Trump being an aberration relative to Reagan. As long as you distinguish tariff from quotas, okay? If you go out and measure tariffs under Reagan, you're not going to see a lot. He threatened some. He didn't do them. He did the quotas instead. But I don't know an economist who'd like, oh, the quotas is much better than the tariffs. Let's give the money to the foreign companies. That's why he didn't get a trade war, by the way. <laughs> well, he was giving, Reagan was giving money to the Japanese companies while he was protecting our domestic companies. So of course the Japanese didn't fight back. In fact, people in CEA folks from the Reagan administration have told me the Japanese companies came into the White House and asked for quotas and Reagan gave it to them. Um, and I applaud Trump for it. I don't like protectionism, but if you're gonna do protectionism, at least do it in a way that brings revenue to the United States instead of the foreign companies. Um, I just want to get off trade just for a second, unless Mike has something um, to say. Um, I think a lot of people, if, if they think about populist policy, they would certainly talk about uh, trade and the trade war. And as someone who's, who watched a lot of Trump rallies back in 2015, 2016, um, my impression that trade was a pretty big part of uh, Trumponomics and also immigration. Um, what do you think Trump's policies on immigration, Casey, have been good ideas? And would you like to see them uh, continued in, in, in future administrations or even extended? Um, I don't know if anybody was aware of what his plan is. His plan, essentially, the Canadian and Australian plans, <laughs> which is that immigration should be legal, not illegal, and based on economic contribution of the immigrant. That was his plan. Privately, what the president said, he actually opened this Rose Garden ceremony by saying, citizenship is the most precious thing America has to offer. Privately, he said that too. He went to the next step, which really amazed and impressed me. He said, you know, we ought to be selling citizenship, which of course was Gary Becker's, what Gary Becker called his radical proposal for immigration reform would be to have a fee for immigration. Now, the president is a good politician and he knows he's not gonna go out and try to sell that to Congress. Um, but the Canadian and Australian system, their point-based system is kind of a central plan way to try and imitate what a fee-based system would deliver. So now, of course, Congress ain't gonna do anything that the president wants in immigration. So maybe you'd say this, this is not that meaningful. This is his plan. And this is, would be his chance to, to do demonstrative acts rather than substantive acts. And his plan was the Canadian and Australian plan, which is a kind of an approximation to the Gary Becker plan. So I was quite impressed with what the president does on, on immigration um, in terms of policy. You know, the rhetoric, that's, that's not my area. You know, I, I'm a policy analyst, I'm not a speechwriter. Um, but I look at the substance and I'm pretty impressed. 
Mike, are you impressed by the president's immigration uh, proposals or direction? Well, I think in terms of the in terms of the substance of that of that specific proposal, you know, I think I think there were a lot of questions about about the the the, the details of that proposal, but the basic idea that we should have a, a skill, we should move a little closer toward a skills-based immigration system and a little bit away from a, from a family-based immigration system, I think is, is completely sound. Uh, you know, I guess my own view is, you know, why not, why, you know, why not do both? Why not just have significantly, uh, uh, a significantly larger number of green cards awarded to highly skilled immigrants and, 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 and just add that on top of what we're already doing. But, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that is a reasonable uh, policy goal. Again, the details of the proposal, I think were, you know, needed, needed some work, um, but, uh, but, but the overall kind of architecture and philosophy behind it, I think, I think was, was reasonable. I, I agree with, I agree with Casey about that. I don't think we, I don't think we should judge the entirety of the president's uh, work on uh, immigration based on that, that one, that one proposal. And again, going back to the question of whether Trumpian populism has succeeded or, or failed, you know, a big part of the reason why uh, that didn't get any traction is because the president has no credibility on this issue uh, because of his uh, extreme hostility uh, toward uh, uh, immigrants and, and toward immigration. You know, the, uh, the travel ban on, uh, uh, on um, uh, people from, from some Muslim majority nations, uh, you know, set the tone early in the administration on this. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, all the way up until the pandemic when the Trump administration attempted to uh, uh, say to people who were here on student visas that if you can't attend class in person, you have to go back to your home country, um, which uh, uh, was just outrageous uh, public policy. Um, you know, the, the, the last four years have really been kind of littered with, uh, with that type of thing. Uh, and uh, that has stopped uh, any momentum, any possibility of, of meaningful legislation uh, on immigration while uh, President Trump is president, even on issues where the kind of, you know, 30,000 foot structure the president is, is advocating is, 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 is completely reasonable, uh, you know, even if obviously still debatable. Um, and so, you know, I would say, has Trumpian populism succeeded on immigration? No, it hasn't. Um, and 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 a big, or, or I'm sorry, has, has has President Trump succeeded on immigration? No, he hasn't. And a big part of that is uh, maybe even most of it is because of the populist elements of his posture uh, toward immigration. Have response, Casey, or we can move on. Yeah, I, I think we should move on. I mean, these are interesting subjects, but we should treat them proportionally, which is. Not, not disproportionately by spending the whole day on that. You know, another definition of populism is sort of a kind of politics and policy that just doesn't believe in constraints uh, and maybe not trade-offs either. And Republicans used to be very concerned about budget deficits and entitlements. Uh, that has not been a big part of Trumpian populism so far. Um, is that... Is that is that will that can would that continue to be a part of Trumpian populism? Just we just don't worry about debts and deficits and and entitlements. That's uh, that's for the other party to worry about, I guess, when they get in power. Trumpian populism, I, I think you're right. Um, I've heard the president say, "Oh, you know, the government revenue machine 
we just spin that massive wheel a little bit faster. <laughs> he, he's not real concerned oh. <laughs> about, uh, about the deficit. Um, now, I, do, he do you view that as a failure? Do you do that as a, I mean, it's gone up a lot, right? Yeah, I, I, I view that as a, a failure. Um, now, ultimately, the fundamentals here are generational equity. But that's the fundamental thing. I mean, the problem with the big debt is you're leaving on the children and the grandchildren, right? And so I would want to take a, I'll put on my Kotlikoff hat here, I would like to take a more holistic view of generational policy here. So COVID would factor into that, you know, how are we treating the children versus the older people and, that, and those sort of trade-offs. I don't know that he's that unusual in terms of generational inequity uh, compared to past presidents on the whole, but certainly in that specific area of treasury bonds and bills, he would be putting the burden on the future generations. Is that, has this been a problem, Mike, the, uh, the lack of interest or concern in uh, the national debt, which used to be a, seemed to be a big concern when it was smaller? Yeah, I think it's been a problem. I mean, here I would, uh, <laughs> I guess I would let the president off the hook a little bit. Um, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that, that there's bipartisan concern about the debt and deficit. It's just never uh, the number one concern that, that, that either party has. Uh, you know, of course, it's true that President Trump significantly increased the structural budget deficit. He did that hand in glove with, uh, with uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan, who you know, is a um, you know, very kind of establishment traditional Republican. Uh, and, um, and you know, there was not a whole lot of concern about that from, 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 from the Republican Party at the time. Uh, the deficit went up significantly under President George W. Bush, who established a, a, an additional uh, entitlement program without a funding mechanism. Uh, and uh, of course, the president, the, the deficit went up under under President Obama as well. So this is this is a bipartisan issue. I think what I think I think where where populism shows up in 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 President Trump's approach to the debt and deficit, which is, uh, I think, um, uh, an aberration among Republican presidents is, uh, you know, the president's enthusiasm for not uh, cutting projected future spending on Social Security and Medicare. Uh, you know, uh, the Romney Ryan campaign back in 2012 had that on their campaign website as a, um, as a, as a goal. And of course, Speaker Ryan made his reputation uh, in large part on on restraining entitlement spending, uh, and you know President Trump, you know not only uh, just ignored that and you know put it in put it in the background, but actually was quite vocal that he would not reduce spending on Medicare, he would not reduce spending on Social Security uh, during the 2016 campaign, and then when he was was uh, actually in office in 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 2017, uh, you know continued to. Make it very clear that he just wasn't interested in, in cutting future spending on on those programs. Uh, you know, maybe that's populism. Maybe that's smart politics. You know, maybe that's just honesty. And, and you know, that's that's uh, you know, I think I think I think I think that remains. You know, that's a, that's an open question. But um, uh, but um, uh, but I don't. You know, I wouldn't uh, give uh, uh, President Trump a particularly hard harsh grade when grading on a curve on this. Um, and uh, I don't view this as a, as a major manifestation of, of his populism. I have a question uh, for Twitter. 
And that says, if uh, President Trump is defeated, how will populism on the right change? Start with uh, Casey. You know, that's like asking when the Blackberry, we got the Blackberry, what's coming next? So, yeah, that, so you're ready for this one. You, I, no, what comes I, I after the, is it the iPhone or is it? Uh... It would be, be something better. I, you know, how is it better? I mean, I would be the billionaire if I, <laughs> I knew exactly how to improve on it. But I think the, the populism will remain. They will look at Trump closely um, and try to figure out what, what he did well and what can be improved. Um, and I think it's going to go back to the elites are making mistakes and they're not acknowledging these mistakes. And the people don't have to tolerate that. I, most of Michael's book, I agree with, you know, the progress has been great for wide swaths of the population, but that doesn't mean that people have to tolerate these kind of mistakes uh, from the people they elect. They elect the people to do a job. And if they're not doing it well and their subordinates are not doing it well, they have a right to be angry and they are angry. And I gave, the book is full of examples where they didn't do a good job. The individual mandate was a terrible job. The opioid policies are been a terrible job, continue to be a terrible job. Um, and people are gonna be upset with that. And the, the next entrepreneur will figure out um, how to take on the, the elite um, and still you know, try to try to do the job as president. It's not easy because the elite fight back. I mean, they're, the elite aren't stupid people. They're not powerless people. Um, so it's not an easy product to invent, but I'm confident that somebody will invent a new and improve. And Mike, how do you think populism on the right evolves? We've talked a lot about trade and I'm a little confused about what, we're, what, what Republicans think about trade. On one hand, they're talking about sort of decoupling the two economies but yet the phase one trade deal actually in many ways more firmly integrated the two economies, made China a better place to invest, uh, you, know, you know, more, more, more agricultural goods being, so I, I'm thinking maybe on trade or I guess any other issue you want to address, how does that populism on the right evolve in a post-Trump era? Well, I think, so I guess the first thing I would say is I think it, I think it does evolve. Um, I think it evolves a lot, a lot, uh, Less than than is commonly believed. I mean, I think you know, I think I think the United States was on the cusp of extinguishing this populist flame uh, when the pandemic hit. Um, and you know, I would note that the Democratic Party nominated uh, Vice President Biden when it could have nominated Senator Sanders or Senator Warren, uh, both of whom were populists. And you know, I mean, who knows? But my guess is is that if if the Democratic primaries were held one year earlier. When the economy was still weaker, um, uh, and when and when and when the gains from the recovery hadn't hadn't reached everyone in the nation as strongly yet, that that one of the populist candidates would have would have had you know perhaps more success. Uh, you know, there's a pattern, and you see it uh, over the last century, uh, even longer, and you see it uh, across um, democracies, which is that when you have a big recession. Uh, that originated in the financial sector um, uh, and that results in widespread hardship, you get a surge in populism. And you can measure that by seats in the, in the country's legislature and parliamentary systems. Uh, we saw this you know, in, in Britain with, uh, with Boris Johnson, for example. Um, and then as the uh, recovery continues from that recession, populism recedes. And populism was receding in the United States, uh, uh, and now, of course, we have we have the pandemic, and and, and the economy is in terrible shape again. Um, so, 
my first answer to your question is that I think as um, as as we recover from this from this recession, you know, populism will uh, you know may surge again because we're in terrible shape. But you know, when we get back to a healthy economy, uh, uh, its influence will diminish. Uh, but I do think there will be some lasting elements of this. Some of those elements are good. Um, I think that, uh, and I hope that the Republican Party, because of President Trump, is more focused on on uh, uh, providing economic opportunity to lower income households and workers than it previously has been. Uh, uh, you know that would be a good lesson learned. I hope it's not just the white working class. I hope it's the entire you know uh, uh, you know bottom twenty percent or bottom third of the income distribution. Um, but I think that would be that would be a a, a positive lasting legacy of, of 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 the president's populism. I think a hawkishness toward China is going to be something that 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 uh, that justifiably should continue to be a part of of of, of uh, the political right. Hopefully, it's executed better um, than, uh, than than the Trump administration has done. But I would expect that would last. And then, unfortunately, I think that um, that hostility toward Immigrants and immigration is going to be uh, uh, is going to have some staying power on the political right, and I think that will accrue to the detriment of of, of the United States. Uh, I have another Michael, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Michael, is there is there something missing from your definition and mine that would make because our definitions are about the elite versus the people, but we are then you were you were calling Sanders and Warren populists, but their whole policy agenda is to give more power to the elite over the people. So what gives- Yeah, they don't, they don't see it that way. <laughs> they don't see it that way. Uh, but I, but I, but I, I understand, I understand your analysis of that. Uh, I have a question from at Jim Pethokoukas, Twitter. That's me. Um, one thing- I'm Are you asking curious, this question? I am asking this question ah. from myself, but it, as someone from Twitter, I'm that was clever my, phrasing. Yeah, it was clever phrasing. We're, we're you know, it's, it's the end. All the, all rules are off. Uh, what I don't know necessarily about you, Casey, or about the president, but when I hear a lot of sort of these sort of new um, Trumpian populist policy people on the right, when they talk about the big elite policy mistakes, the two mistakes that come up over and over again are. Um, Letting, you know, giving China permanent, most favored nation trading status, kind of letting them be part of the global economy in 2000. And then the 1965 Immigration Act, which increased immigration to the United States from areas where we weren't getting a lot of immigrants. Do you view those uh, as, as failures of elites, letting more immigrants into this country and, and helping China become a more integrated part of the global economy? Well, there are elements of failure. I mean, where was the fentanyl coming from? Um, you know, or let me, there was a report that Clinton administration did around NAFTA about what that did to the price of heroin that, that is classified. You, you and I can't see it. There's, they buried those facts. Um, so there were elements of real cost to some of these trade arrangements that weren't acknowledged. It doesn't mean there weren't benefits. Maybe the benefits are bigger, but they're sweeping. The you think it's a net benefit, China? Do you think that was still a net benefit to have China being a greater part of the global it's, economy? It's hard for me to analyze. With Japan, it would be easy for me to say, yeah, because Japan's a democracy, doesn't have military. You know, there's, there's a whole national security part of it that I, it's not my expertise. I really can't weigh in. I, it has to be weighed in. Um, you know, on an immigration, I'm coming from a university, so you shouldn't listen to what I'm going to say, but 
the university sector has been given a lot of special favors around immigration. Um, and you could understand why the people would say, you know, the, the academia hates us and they hate this president. Why are we giving you these special favors? Um, you know, and so that's a problem. Not that I'm against more immigration, but when the immigration is doled out to special interests, the rights to immigration are doled out to special interests, that, that I would question. And then that's kind of what I see keeping the fuel going, uh, even among in, within Trump's administration in terms of um, pushing against some of these old immigration plans and deals. All right, uh, we're just about to end. Mike, any final comment? Uh, just uh, to uh, thank Casey for writing the book and, and to encourage everybody who's tuning in to buy it. It really is very thoughtful. And, and these are, these are uh, complicated issues that admit quite a bit of, of reasonable disagreement. And, and I would encourage everybody to, to, um, to read Casey's perspective on this. All right, uh, Casey, I, I didn't actually give you an official last comment. So this would be your opportunity. No, I, I agree with Michael and Michael, um, it's interesting to have the two books side by side. I think you'll learn a lot more. The, the sum is better than the parts. Uh, the sum is greater than the parts. Um, so this issue is not going away. So it's worth learning about and investing in. Great, thanks a lot. All right, and that's, that's it for the AI event. Uh, thanks for watching.